Well, good morning. I would invite you to return in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. If this is your first Sunday here, we are studying the book of Acts, and we left off here a couple weeks ago, here in Acts 2, and I want to, uh, I'm glad you are all here, and I also just want to say thank you on behalf of my family for all the support you gave to us these past few weeks, and really, it's been a while, I've been kind of many of you know, kind of disengaged through this journey over the past several weeks, so we just appreciate the support and the time and the prayers and the cards and, and all that you've given to our family. It means a lot to us, and uh, we continue to covet your prayers. And I would also just, you know, again, let's make sure we continue to pray for the Massey family there. If you don't know, the pastor of Glad Tidings died suddenly on Friday, and uh, and so it's it's a... You know, you can imagine the, the trauma there in that family, so we want to keep praying for glad tidings and our brothers and sisters there and for the family and their, their grief there as well. So would you just bow your head? Let me just pray for all of this right now. Let's just pray together. Father, as Jeff just prayed a few minutes ago, we, we come to you because you are the God of all comfort. You are the God who who is here and has sanctified death and has made it something that uh, was solely a curse and now becomes the doorway to life. I thank you for the cross that we could celebrate that life that's in the cross. And, and Lord, as we come to be around your word today, I pray that it would pierce our hearts as we are still here and living and, and walking. And, and I pray that it would give us a sense of vigor and and, and in essence, a, a vision for, for the life and the vapor you've put before us. And Lord, even today, as glad tidings is gathering and no doubt grieving, I pray, God, that you would bring comfort to them. May your word enrich them, and, and, and may they find the sufficient comfort that Christ gives the one who conquered death. And so, Lord, as we gather now to be in, in this word to study Acts, I, I again pray that it would conform us to the image of Jesus and allow us to leave here with a sense of vision and purpose for our lives. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I was praying that, and that's been my prayer. And actually, I, I, this passage is really an amazing passage for us to be on here in Acts chapter 2. And, and I'll tell you why past few weeks I've been really meditating about life and meditating about the reality of life and the vision of life and what is life and 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 of course just a passage of scripture that's been on my mind a lot it's kind of can appear like a pretty depressing passage but Ecclesiastes 7 2 when Solomon said it's better to be in the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting you know it's better to be at a funeral than at a party why why is that a better place? He says, well, that's the end of all mankind. That's, that, that's the reality of life, is that this is a temporal moment. It's a vapor. It's, it's not going to last forever. And it goes fast. And so I started thinking about this, not in an oppressive kind of melancholy way, like, oh my, we're all going to die, that's it, you know, just kind of Eeyore, you know, it's all over and that's it. Not in that kind of nihilistic way, but what had hit me was the reality that, that when we are alive here, that God has us here for a reason. And that this moment is supposed to count. And, and, and what we're supposed to do is look at that end 
and then work backwards to where we are today. And I realized something. I thought, you know, one of the things that, that has come out of these past few weeks processing all of the, the pain our family or church family has felt through the deaths and, and all that's been going on is this one realization that's hit me. That fundamentally, what we all want to hear when we reach the end of our life is, well done, good and faithful servant, right? You know, have you been faithful? And I realize that's what I want to be. I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful with my life. I want to be faithful with the vapor. However long that vapor is going to last, I want to be faithful. And I realized something. Faithfulness is sometimes hard to define. If I say, well, you should be faithful with your life, your response might be, well, what does that mean? What does that mean to be faithful? How do we define it? That's where this passage in Acts actually has helped me. Meditating on this passage over the past couple weeks, I have realized something. This is the start of the church in one sense. We could say this is the moment when the first kind of group of believers are gathered and the Spirit of God descends upon them and they are responding to a message. And the message that they're responding to is a very specific message. And I've realized something. The thing that they are responding to is the whole key to being faithful in your life. I've kind of reduced it down to the fact that if you don't see what these people are responding to in Peter's sermon and how they responded to it, you probably will never be faithful in your walk with God. He said, that's a pretty bold statement. Why would I say this? Well, here's what they're responding to. I'll tell you pretty simply what they're responding to. They are responding to a simple message that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He's both Savior and Lord. And therefore... You must follow him. He's the Lord. Now, if he's not the Lord, if he's just the Savior, right? if he's just the Savior, then maybe you just say, well, I'll just kind of receive that salvation, and then I'll just go on with my life. And that's kind of one of the issues that comes up. That's why, you know, my little pet peeve I have with the phrase, I ask Jesus into my heart, it's kind of just like I'm going along and I realized I need to drink more water and I need Jesus and I should eat more vegetables. and you know I'm just adding these good things to my life. But no, I need more than just Jesus in my heart. I need a whole new heart. I need a whole new life. I need to be washed clean. And I need Jesus more than just as a Savior. I need to follow Him. I've got to follow Him. But if Jesus is just my Savior, then I'm probably not going to be prone to follow Him. I've been amazed, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, I've been amazed that when the first persecution came upon the church, their very first prayer was not, God, protect us from this persecution. Their first prayer was, God, give us boldness that we would continue to proclaim no matter what happens. How do you get that kind of prayer life going? Well, that realization that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, I want to follow Him. Now, what happens if Jesus is only your Lord? And not just your Savior. Well, then you kind of walk in fear, right? He's this judge, and he's hating you, and he's mad at you, and you're never going to measure up, and you don't have forgiveness. And So a lot of people, they walk in this understanding that he's Lord in this kind of sense that he's coming down upon you, but you have no hope in that. And so the reality of the Christian life is this embracing that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He redeemed you. He called you out of the pit. He loves you. He's clothed you with his righteousness. But he's also the Lord of the universe. And we must follow him. That's the message that Peter's preaching. 
And that's the message they're responding to. And by responding to that message, what happens? Faithfulness begins to be the fruit of their life. So I want to show this to you today. I want to show it to you. I want to unpack this today. Very simple. What I want to show you is first the conviction of these believers. What they were, the, the conviction that came upon them. Then I want to show you what Peter called them to do. He had a calling for them. Then I, we'll see the conversion. We'll see what happens when they get converted. And there's two questions I'd like for you to have circling in your brain. If you're capable of circling questions while we go through this. Two things I'd like you to think about. That I think are the key to the Christian walk, the key to a faithful walk. And the two questions are this. First one is, what do I really believe about Jesus? I mean, at the end of the day, how do I really define who Jesus is? Second question, which really helps you answer the first question. How is that reflected in the way you live? How is that reflected in the way you live? In other words, whatever you say you believe about Jesus, how does that actually look this Tuesday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? How does it look next Saturday when you're making your plans of what you're going to do Saturday night? How does that look when you choose the friends you're going to hang out with? How does that look when you choose to accept or reject certain things in your life? How does that look in your life? I want you to think about those as we unpack this. So let's look first at the conviction. Look at verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now I want you to notice what's going on here. Jeff, in his scripture reading, he went up to verse 36, which kind of helps us understand the essence of what Peter's message was. Because here's, what, here's what's going on. The Spirit has come upon 120 disciples. They begin to speak in all the languages uh, in the Roman Empire. Jews from all these different countries are hearing the gospel being proclaimed in their own languages, and they're saying, what does this mean? What does this mean? Is, are you guys drunk? Is something happening? What's going on here? Peter stands up and says, we're not drunk. Let me tell you what's going on. The prophet Joel, the book of Joel is being fulfilled because when Joel said the Spirit of God was going to descend, that's what's happening. The Spirit's descending. And then Peter says, let me tell you how this happened. Let me tell you why this is happening. And he begins to unfold Jesus. And he says, now Jesus, the one, you know, about 55, 60 days ago, the one that you said, crucify him, that one, he actually is the Messiah. And that it was God's plan that he died. So whether you had said crucify or not, he still would have died. But the fact that you said crucify is a bad thing, which we'll get to in a minute. He died, but here's what happened. The scriptures tell us not only would he, that he was going to die, but that he was going to go into the grave, that he was going to rise from the dead, that he was going to ascend into heaven, he was going to sit at the right hand of God, and now he's ruling over the world. The one that you hated... The one that you said crucify him, the one that you said is the devil, you know, some had accused him of even being that, the one that you shook your fist and said crucify him, we would rather have Barabbas, that one is actually Lord and Savior of the world. So just realize something. When you saw him up there, this is kind of the implication of the message, when you saw him up there by Pilate, and he was on one side and Barabbas was on the other, and you said, crucify that one, give us the other one, you were choosing against God himself. 
That's what was going on here. Now, notice the response of the people. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You know, some passages talk about being pierced or pricked or different things like that. I, I might just put it this way. You know, they were, they were kicked in the gut is a maybe way we would say that today. You know, somebody just came by and hit them so hard that the, the essence, the picture you have to get here is that these people are falling to the ground. They can't stand up. It's that kind of intensity. You know, when you see cut to the heart, you might just blow past that. But what the words and what the grammar is trying to communicate are people who have just realized we've just opposed God. And they're Jews. They know what that means. They know the plagues are going to come upon them. They know bad things happen when you reject God. Cut to the heart. Just the image you should have in your brain are people weeping and crying. Now I want you to catch the picture here. Josephus, the historian who lived during this time, said there were probably a million people in Jerusalem. There could be up to eight or nine or 10,000 people that are hearing this message. Because 3,000 got converted that day. There's thousands of people. So we know at least bare minimum, 3,000 have probably fallen to the ground and are weeping. That's conviction. That is the essence of what real conviction is. But notice, their conviction wasn't just like, a, oh, my bad, God, or, oh, I misunderstood God. It was, we have just rejected God. We've just rejected God, and that's what's going on here. That's really the essence of this conviction here. And I want you to see this, and I wanted to pull this out, because I just want you to realize that their conviction wasn't just a slight movement or just a slight... Uh, acknowledgement of their sin but it completely overwhelmed them and they have realized there is nothing that can be done there's no movement there's no action they're left paralyzed and dumbfounded that's why they're going to ask what should we do we don't know what to do we've just offended god we've just rejected god so there's the repentance okay now let's look at the calling let's look at what happened and how peter responds to this so peter says to them Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful statement. He tells them basically one thing, but it's kind of divided into two parts, repent and be baptized. And I'm just going to tackle those as two separate things, but I'm going to show you that really they're one thing. It's all kind of one thought here. But let's just look at it. The first thing he tells them is to repent. Now let me, repentance is a term, we've defined this many times on Sundays, but let me just do it again. The simple definition of repentance is to change your mind. But, but that, at times, doesn't convey a whole lot of what the essence of it is. Let me kind of illustrate it for you. You know, before I got married, um, you know, I mean, you guys know me, I like to joke, and I like to joke around, and sometimes before I get, you know, before I got married, sometimes my humor could push to the edge of things in bad ways. You know, there's probably lots of jokes that I'm glad I forgot that I told that were, you know, a little, little far on the edge. And, and I, you know, I just like to laugh and sometimes could tell jokes or say things or come back with a quick response that's inappropriate. And, 
And I could recall, you know, before I got married, making jokes about marriage. Just, just whatever, dumb, dumb things. Things that just were just not worth saying. But, you know, after you get married and you realize the, the value of it and the sacredness of it and how incredible it is, I don't joke about it anymore. I don't joke about it. My whole worldview has changed about marriage. It's not something that, that I can just kind of say something quick about and just move on or, or, or just kind of cut down or speak in a belittling, belittling way. I've realized marriage is a great thing. And it's a gift from God. And, and we should uphold it as, as something that he's entrusted to us. It's a wonderful thing. Now that, in one sense, is what repentance is. It's a whole shift of your operating system. It's the entire shift of thinking in a whole new way about something. To where suddenly, the things that you used to do, the, the ways you used to feel, you don't feel anymore. You now are ready to go in another direction with them. That's repentance. It's saying, I, I don't joke about that anymore. I don't laugh about that anymore. If someone tells a joke and they, they belittle marriage, I'm not going to give them even the polite snicker. I'm going to give them one of those uncomfortable looks. It's not worth joking about. Right? That's repentance. It's like changing the entire operating system. That's, some, and that's the picture here. When he tells them to repent, what he's telling them to do is he's telling them to say, hey, listen, I want your operating system to change. Now, what is it that he wants them to repent of? He's not asking them to go down a whole list of individual sins, like you lied yesterday or... You looked, you know, you had lust in your heart yesterday or you stole something. He's not asking them to do that. They have to repent of their wrong view of Jesus. And I want to tell you, that's the key. This is a whole passage. They had a wrong view of Jesus. And because if whatever you, however you view Jesus determines how you're going to live. If you are sitting there and you're saying, boy, you know, when I leave church, my week pretty much stinks. I do more sinning than I do anything else. And every time my friends start pulling me in that bad direction, I just follow them, man. I'm just so weak. Help me. Like, if that's what you're thinking right now, I would say to you, your view of Jesus is very small. You're not really capturing who he is. And the first thing I would call you to repent of is turn your mind from is to shift your thinking about who Jesus is. That's what he's telling them to do. You've got to shift your thinking about who Jesus is. Now, <clears throat> what I'd like to do is just take a minute and kind of just unpack repentance even a little bit further. The reason why I want to do this is because throughout the book of Acts, repentance is connected more to the forgiveness of sins than any other word. You're going to see this as we go through the sermons. It's always repent and they were forgiven. Repent and they were forgiven. They repented and they were forgiven. This theme of repentance comes up over and over and over again. Because that's the call. The call is the way you're viewing the world, the way you're viewing Jesus is wrong. And I want to tell you who he is so you have a right view of him. So let me just give you kind of just an, uh, an overview of repentance. So just extra stuff here on top of the sermon. A freebie. I normally charge $13 for this, but I'll give it to you for free here. Okay. So here's the first thing. First thing you got to know about repentance, just a little side excursion here, but repentance cannot occur without the Holy Spirit convicting people. John 16, 8, the Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
it, it's a work of the Spirit. I say that because there are some people who think it's the pastor's job to convict people. Back in the 1800s, that was pretty popular in American revivalism. They called it the hot seat. You know, the pastor should start telling horrible stories of hell just to get people to come forward and try to, you know, evoke an emotional response. And Now, it's the Spirit's role to convict people of sin. This is why we pray for people. God, let your Spirit convict them. Second thing I want you to know about repentance is that repentance does involve sorrow. You notice they were cut to the heart. I am wrong. Like the fullness of that sense that I've blown it. It's not real repentance if there isn't that sense that you're broken and humbled before God. It involves a sorrow over your sin. Third, repentance then involves renouncing the sin, saying, I no longer want to have that worldview. I no longer want to think about Jesus that way. I want to turn. I want to embrace this new way. <clears throat> We're going to see that the early church would devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That actually is part of repentance. We, we no longer want to have the old view of Jesus. We now want to know this new view. We want to understand it. We want you to teach us, apostles. We want to understand who Jesus is. And then fourthly, repentance involves a commitment to the pursuit of God. Did I skip one? We're, all, we're on the fourth one, right? I just thought all of a sudden I missed one. Yeah, fourth. Repentance involves a commitment to the pursuit of God. It's now walking after this. The whole reason why you're repenting is you don't want to go down that road anymore. That's what we're going to see. That's what it means to be a disciple. We're now following after Jesus. So this is that repentance element. This is what he's telling them. He's saying, guys, you're broken. The Spirit has convicted you of your sin, right? The Spirit has come. He's worked through us. You've heard the word. You're now broken. You now need to turn away from this view of Jesus, this weak view of Jesus. You've got to embrace this right view. But notice what else he says to him. He says to repent and be baptized. Now this sometimes throws people off. But I'll give you a little study tip here. When you're, whenever you're reading the Bible and you read something, especially in a, in a narrative like Acts, and it's not explained to you, you have to assume that the original readers and the original people that, that the event occurred in front of understood what it meant. So when Peter says, repent and be baptized, he didn't start saying, now let me explain to you baptism. I'll give you a sermon on baptism. He didn't do any of that. So we have to say, well, they understood what it meant. So now we ask ourselves, what did that mean to those people when he said repent and be baptized? Well, it's pretty clear what it meant. Because throughout all of Israel, and I'm going to show this to you just in the, in the book of Matthew in a second here, repentance and baptisms were, were always the same act. Whenever the people of Israel repented, they were baptized. The two things went hand in hand. Just follow, listen, I think it will be up on the screen. Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist comes on the scene. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, he's preaching repentance. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore garments of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
what was baptism? Baptism was this, this understanding that we're, we're not right, we're dirty, we're clean, we're sinners, we've got to be washed clean. And so they would repent and automatically run to the water to get dipped, to get cleansed. Just a natural reaction to their repentance. Roughly around 50 times in the Old Testament, there's about 50 references to cleansing, dipping, washing someone as a sign of purification. And in fact, the story goes on. If you look at what happened in, in uh, the Matthew passage in verse 7, it says, but, but when John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, the ritual itself doesn't save anybody, right? If, I mean, if, if I knew that just getting you wet would save you, I'd just get a big hose. I'd hose everybody down right now, right? I mean, in the name of Jesus, man, I'd just be like washing you down, right? That'd be settled, right? Kids born, just bring a big hose, just hose them down right away. But that's not the case. Why? They hadn't repented. These guys were coming. They wanted to participate in the baptism. And he says, no, you haven't repented. I know you're not repenting. If you were repenting, you'd be walking away from all of the wretched laws you added to the word of God. But you're not walking away from them. You're continuing on in your same walk. You haven't repented. If you really repent, trust me, you're coming in this water and I'm baptizing you. I think that's the essence of what John is saying. So he says, be baptized. But if you notice, when he tells him this, he says, repent. You notice what he says. Oh, here's where there's a little bit of a change. He says in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where it's different. They understood one thing. That whenever you're baptized and whatever you're baptized into, that's what you're identifying with. So let me give you an example of this. If somebody was a Gentile, wasn't a Jew, they would come in and say, I want to follow Jehovah, I want to follow God. The Jews would baptize him and say, you are now a child of the covenant. You're a child of the covenant. They bring him in the water, bring him out, and say, you're a child of the covenant. What they were doing is, in essence, having them identify with the law. You're now aligning yourself with the law of God. When Jesus ascended, before he ascended, he said, I want you to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I want them to be aligned into the work of God. This triune work of death, burial, resurrection, and, 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 and the filling of the Spirit. I want you aligned. So he says, so Peter says, listen, when you come into this water, something is going to be different this time. Here's what's going to be different. You are now going to identify with Jesus and his death, his burial, his resurrection. So, think about this. You have a bunch of Jews... The majority of Israel has thought that Jesus uh, was a criminal worthy of death. I mean, just a little over 50 days ago, the nation had rejected him. And he's saying, you guys just rejected God. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to turn away from that bogus view of Jesus. And I'm going to ask you to repent of that and turn. And we're going to bring you into the water and we're going to bring you down, and we're going to let all of Israel know that you are aligning yourself 100% with Jesus. That he is now the Lord and Savior of your life and the world. And you're, you're renouncing your entire Jewish perspective, bad Jewish perspective of Jesus. 
You're aligning with Jesus 100%. That's what he's calling them to do. If you're going to repent, you better fully repent. That's what he's saying. And this is why he says, for the forgiveness of your sins. The reality is that, that, there is, that the, the, the forgiveness that was accomplished at the cross isn't applied until there's full-on repentance. And the full-on repentance would not even be recognized or seen without them saying, we're willing to identify with Jesus 150%. We're willing to renounce all of our old views. We're willing to stand in the waters of baptism and say, yes, Jesus is Lord and Savior. We'll announce it to all of Israel. That's the essence of what's going on here. It's a very powerful call. Now the question that some people ask is, is this adding a work to salvation? I thought we were saved by, by faith. The reality is this doesn't challenge that at all. Why? Because if these people had never believed the message of Peter, they would have never been repented or baptized. In fact, just, just drop, drop ahead just for a second. Look at verse 41. I mean, what does 41 say right at the very beginning? It says all those who believed were baptized, right? Here's the reality. They heard the words of Peter, and they said, we believe this, what should we do? There was their faith. What's the fruit of faith? The fruit of faith is you are going to repent of all the bad views, and you're going to 100% identify completely with Jesus. He's everything to you now. He's not that little thing you hide in the background, like, I hope no one finds out I'm a Christian. Right? The little, like, subtle prayer at the restaurant, like, I'm going to keep my head up and just kind of close my eyes and, you know, no, I'm all in, man. Jesus is everything. I'm all in. I want to take this thing to the world. But you would never do that if you didn't believe the message. They believed. And then they were baptized. Here's the essence of it. There's the faith. And I want you to notice the expansion of this faith. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is a huge change. Because we no longer have this reality of like, he's not just saying, heads of households, you are the only one who can repent and you'll repent for your children. No. He's saying, listen, there could be a kid standing there and say, I believe that about Jesus. And say, guess what? You can be saved. You can be four years old and hear this message. You can be saved. Come into the waters of baptism. You could be a man, you could be a woman, you could be a Jew, you could be a pagan living off there with 57 wives, participating in all kinds of pagan stuff, and you could hear this message and say, I believe Jesus is Lord and Savior, and you are welcome to come, and we will baptize you in the name of Jesus, and you'll be now connected to the Lord of the universe. It's for everyone. It, it went from being a national message, right? Uh, the Old Testament and Judaism and every God working through this nation to now being this expansive thing for the whole world. Very powerful statement. It says it's for everybody. The promise of the salvation and the promise of the filling of the Holy Spirit is open to the world. Whatever your skin color, whatever man, woman, child, all can come doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter anything. That's what he's saying. There's the call. But the essence of this call is what? The essence of this call is you've got to renounce the bad view of Jesus. And you've got to embrace the reality 
that he is Lord and Savior, worthy to be followed, worthy to be identified, and be all in. That's what he's saying. That's the call. Be all in. Now let's look at the conversion. Let's look at the conversion. <clears throat> and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who had received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. So notice, this wasn't just like a, you know, Peter preached and they just responded. There's like a lot of words going on here. And notice the, the statement. With many other words, he continued to, 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 you know, with many other words, he bore witness. What he's saying is he continued to proclaim who Jesus was. Continued to pray, proclaim as Lord and Savior, as worthy of everything. And then he says, listen, get out of this generation of people who don't have the same view of Jesus. Don't embrace this. Get away from these people, these people who have rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior. Get away is what he's saying. That view is not right. That is the Lord of the universe. Get out. He's begging them to get out. This is a crooked generation. They don't accept the lordship of Jesus. They don't see him as Lord and Savior. Get away. And notice what happened in verse 41. We looked at it already. Those who had received it, the idea, those who believed it, those who trusted in it, those who said, yes, we agree with what you're saying about Jesus. They were brought in and they were baptized. And it said that there were 3,000 souls. Could you imagine that? It, I mean, Peter's first sermon, he preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people get saved. And that only happened to me twice in my whole life. I mean, that's a, I'm kidding. <laughs> I just can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine 3,000 people getting saved. You're starting off with a megachurch, right? I mean, it's amazing. But it's a powerful moment. But, but it's not just that, that we have this big church and it's a successful church. It's 3,000 people who have embraced Christ as both Lord and Messiah. And that's why these 3,000 people, as we'll see in a little bit in, in the weeks to come, when the persecution comes, they don't say, protect us, keep us safe. The world's coming. The government's coming. They're taking it away. Protect us, God. They says, give us more boldness that we continue to stand in their face and proclaim Christ. We want to follow him. He's the Lord. He's worthy to be followed. He's worthy to be followed. So what do we do with this passage? How do we wrap this up? I just want you to stop and think about something. The essence of this passage what do you really believe about Jesus? And so that brings us back to the two questions I ask you. What, did you really, what do you really believe about Jesus? We really want to get the heart of this passage. There's lots of things in here, but the essence of what Peter is saying is he's saying that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. Lord and Christ, he says. Christ means Messiah. He's Savior and Lord. He's the one worthy to be followed. Do you believe that? You know, sometimes when people come into my office for counseling, they will come in and they'll present their problem. And I will sometimes preempt that. And here's what I will say to people. I will sometimes say this. I'm a lousy counselor. There are way better counselors in the world than me. But there's one thing I can do. I can teach you to obey Jesus. So if you're interested in learning how to obey Jesus in the midst of this problem, 
I'm your man. But that might mean that your problem won't get fixed. That might mean that the problem will continue on. That might mean that for the rest of your life you're going to be dealing with this issue. I don't know. I pray that it won't. But the question I have for you is, are you coming to me because you want to obey Jesus in the midst of this problem? Or are you coming just because you want the problem to go away? I'm horrible at making problems go away. But what I can do is teach you how to obey Jesus in the midst of the problem. It's the only thing I can offer because that's the reality of life. It's a tough life. That's why Solomon says it's better to be at a funeral than at a party. Because the reality is that life is hard and life is tough. We sin, people sin around us, and we live in a decaying body. But rather than getting nihilistic about it and saying, what's the point of it all, let's just all give up, we can say, but you know what? Jesus is Lord of the universe, and he has a purpose for us in the midst of a very difficult and complex world. And the question is this, do we see him that and say, I want to follow him? I no longer want to live for the world anymore. I don't want to put my pleasure up front. I want to follow him. Will I repent of all the ways that I've put my joy and my pleasure and my fun and whatever ahead of obedience to Jesus? Will I repent of that little view of Jesus where maybe I just treat him as Savior but not as Lord? Or will I repent of that little view of Jesus where he's the Lord, he's just this judge and he always is condemning you and he always hates you and you can never measure up to him and he's this horrible person? Will I repent of that and say he's also the Savior? He's redeemed you and he loves you. You have a relationship with him that won't ever, ever change or go away. Will you repent of that little view of Jesus and embrace the right view? See, what do you believe about Jesus? Because that leads us to the second question. How is that reflected in the way you live? How is that reflected? What does that mean in your life? Now, before we pray, I just want to put one more thought out there for you. If today is one of those days where you say, you know what, I've got, I've got this little view of Jesus, and I have never in my life come to the point where I say Jesus is both Lord and Savior, and today's the day I want to do that. And if, and if you're in your heart saying, yeah, today's that day, then I want you to talk to me or to Jeff, because next week I want to baptize you. I want you to identify with this and say, yes, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord and Savior, and I want to proclaim it. I want to identify with that. And so we got a tub we can fill up and we can get you wet. And so we want to be able to do that because I want us to be able to really publicly grasp this. I believe if you miss this, you're going to miss the rest of everything else in the book of Acts. This was the starting spot. Would you bow your head? Let's pray. Jesus, there's so much false teaching about you. Some have trivialized you and made you out as just a savior, and that's it, and think about anything else. Some have trivialized you by making you this ogre and this judge who hates everything. Lord, may we embrace who you are in all fullness today. Lord, I pray that we would repent of the ways that we just get up and live for ourselves and we make our desires our Lord. We make our fun our Lord. 
that we can relegate you and say, okay, I, I asked Jesus into my heart. I'm just going to go my own way and live for myself. God, may we repent of that. May we turn from the crooked generation that has reduced Jesus down to nothing and embrace him as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that, that, that we as a church would renew our commitment to that so that we might actually genuinely and truly begin our walk and our discipleship with you, first and foremost, embracing the fact that only through you can we be saved. That you who saved us is also the Lord of the universe, worthy to be followed. You're worth giving up everything for. Lord, I pray that we would see that today, that your spirit would convict our hearts. And Lord, that even next week people would be baptized, that we would be able to see people announcing their allegiance to Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. Spirit, convict us. Fill us with the words of repentance that we need.